Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the capitated podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on February 19th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. And my co-host is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And this week on Twill, we're very pleased to welcome Nicole Porter, a professor of law at the University of Toledo College of Law. Her research interests focus on the employment rights of women and individuals with disabilities. And not surprisingly, she teaches employment discrimination and disability law. It's been too long, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. Well, before we start discussing some of Nicole's work, um, a little housekeeping. Um, about the time, Frank, this episode hits the feed, uh, the Week in Health Law will be celebrating its birthday. Now, given that this is episode 44, those of you with good math skills are correct. The more accurate title for this podcast indeed would be the 8.3 days in health law. But let's quickly gloss over that. Uh, Frank, our baby is one year old. Good parenting, sir. Bravo, bravo! Yes, <laughs> yes. We should. We definitely should pop open the champagne. The virtual Indeed, champagne is being the virtual popped. champagne, yes. <laughs> or at least the cake, the birthday cake, I guess. So yes. Oh. So Nicole, there won't be a lot of ADA experts uh, listening to this. So there are going to be a lot of health lawyers who know a little bit about disability law. So I wondered if you could really uh, give us an easy slope. Uh, into uh, disability law, into the ADA, um, uh, where it fits in, how it's different, how it complements uh, health law, or anything else that you think would be useful information for us to understand the more complex pieces that we're going to discuss later uh, in the show. Okay, sure. Um, so I think, obviously, disability law affects individuals with disabilities. And as I'm going to talk about later, that definition has been um, very dramatically expanded. So I think that primarily the, the case law that we see under the Americans with Disabilities Act is mostly employment related. And that's obviously where I come to disability law from that place because I was an employment lawyer. But disability law touches every area of someone's life who has a disability. So we have provisions on governmental benefits, we have provisions on accessibility for places of public accommodation, education law is obviously a huge issue for individuals with disabilities. And obviously someone with a disability has to navigate all of that. They have to navigate if they're able to work, they have to navigate um, how to get a job and how to seek the accommodations that they might need to be able to perform their job. But they're also navigating, especially somebody with, let's say, significant mobility impairments, they're navigating many other uh, areas of life as well. And obviously that inter intersects with health law. Um, unfortunately, I think sometimes there's a conflict there because in order for them to get the type of health law benefits that they need, um, they might be better off not working. And so there is some conflict there, although that's not, not really my emphasis. My emphasis is more on individuals who um, can and want to work. So they are disabled, but they can still perform their job as long as they're given reasonable accommodations. Can you give us a little background about how the ADA fits into sort of the broader scheme of civil rights laws? Uh, particularly, I guess, sort of uh, compared to Title VII. Sure. Uh, the ADA was drafted with the intent to make it very similar to other civil rights laws, including Title VII, as well as the Age Discrimination in Employment Act. And some part of the ADA operates the same way as those other statutes. In other words, it prohibits employers 
and other covered entities from discriminating based on disability instead of based on sex, race, age, national origin, as those other statutes do. And and there are many cases that are what I call just straight up discrimination cases. So for instance, an employer um, might believe an employee has a disability that they don't actually have, or they might think that they're unable to do the job, even though the employee has never asked for accommodations and is able to do the job without those accommodations. And in those cases, the um, employer is discriminating, you know, just like they would be if they were facing a decision based on race or sex or age very similar to age discrimination in many ways, where some employers might believe that once you've hit a certain age, you're no longer able to perform some particular functions of the job. So so a big part of the ADA was meant to look a lot like our other civil rights statutes. Obviously, where it's different is that it requires these this idea of reasonable accommodations, that if an employee needs to have an accommodation in order to allow them to perform the functions of the job, then the employer is obligated to provide it. Thank you so much. That's a really great uh, overview, I think, of the ADA. And I know that when I teach it uh, in health law classes, I always find it to be a really uh, difficult topic, particularly when we talk about areas like insurance and some other areas where it comes up, wellness programs, etc. One thing that I think will help our listeners as well in terms of framing the conversation is if you could go over some of the reception of the ADA by the courts and some perhaps unexpected ways in which its scope was limited. Um, because I, I remember I saw a talk by Chai Feldblum once. Uh, now she's an EEOC commissioner. And I think she worked on the law and, and said something on the lines of, I think of this law as my child. And I think it was mistreated by the courts uh, in its early years. So if, if you might be able to, to share some perspectives on that, I think that would be very helpful. Sure. Yes, I'm happy to. And I've also heard her say that as well. Uh, it's been really, I've been in a couple of situations where I've gotten to um, listen to her talk about sort of what they were thinking when they drafted both the original ADA as well as the amendments. Um, so basically, as many people know, the ADA, when it was first enacted in 1990, had overwhelming support. I think, um, if I'm remembering this correctly, 96 out of the 100 senators voted in favor of the ADA. So unprecedented approval, considering that it is a civil rights law. And then the courts began narrowing the construction and specifically narrowly interpreting the definition of disability. Um, and so the ADA defines disability as a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. And so the court, in um, a case called the Sutton Trilogy, the court said that when courts are determining whether or not someone has a disability, they must consider an individual's mitigating measures. So for instance, um, if somebody um, has epilepsy, but it's controlled, their seizures are controlled with medication, they would not be considered disabled. So that had a huge effect because many, many disabilities are mitigated by either medication or assistive devices like hearing aids, etc. And so courts began saying, well, if in your mitigated state, you are not substantially limited in a major life activity, you're not disabled. Um, And so the way this interacted with reasonable accommodations was quite significant. So imagine an employee with diabetes who the way they mitigate it is to take medication and to, I guess, check their blood sugar and eat frequent meals and um, inject insulin if they need it. And the way they might do that is by having frequent breaks from work. But if the court says, well, you're not disabled because in your mitigated state, you're not substantially limited, then the employer doesn't have to provide them the accommodation of more frequent breaks to allow them to mitigate their disability. So it had very significant consequences 
um, the Sutton trilogy of cases where the mitigating measures rule was announced. And then a couple years later, we had a case called Toyota, where the court narrowly construed substantially limits in the the definition of disability by holding that an impairment must prevent or severely restrict a major life activity and that those major life activities must be central to daily life. And the court also stated that the definition of disability must be narrowly construed to create a demanding standard for qualifying as disabled. And so between those two decisions, the lower courts were just rejecting all kinds of impairments, just to give you an example. So impairments such as hypertension, diabetes, multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, mental disabilities, cancer, and many others were all found not to be disabilities after these cases came down. And so plaintiffs were just, you know, losing, you know, time after time after time, and they couldn't even really get their foot in the door to have the the merits of their case heard, because the courts were saying, you don't even belong in the protected class. And therefore, we're not even going to listen to your claim that you were discriminated against based on a disability. So what was the basis for this restrictive interpretation? Is there something in the statutory language? Is there something in the legislative history? Or I suppose, you know, if you want to uh, push it to the to the extreme, is it sort of part of uh, part of the war on entitlements <laughs> that um, that we see with regard to uh, the Affordable Care Act? Um, with some folks saying that you know that the ACA should only apply if you're very very poor or very 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 sick. I, so I think it, it, it's a couple of those things. So I definitely think that um, there was one statement in the preamble to the ADA that that used a number. And so it says some 43 million Americans have one or more disabilities, and that number is going to increase as the population ages. And so the courts use that 43 million to say it's a, they said it's a ceiling rather than a floor, even though it sounds to me (laughs) as a floor, like it's supposed to be a floor. They use it as a ceiling to say, we cannot have an expansive definition of disability, otherwise that number will far exceed 43 million. So that's the one statutory provision that um, the court, the Supreme Court, as well as the lower courts relied on to narrowly construe the definition. But a bunch of um, those of us who write about this have, have stated that there is a backlash against the ADA and that it was really a resistance by the courts to what the ADA was trying to do. Because even though it is meant to be a civil rights statute, it does go farther than that by requiring employers and other entities to provide reasonable accommodations. And I think courts really saw that as being preferential treatment. They saw it as being possibly very expensive for employers and other entities to have to do that. And they were resistant to this really broad coverage. So they only wanted the ADA to apply for those who were fairly severely disabled, um, although that created a conundrum because if you were severely disabled or the more severely disabled you were, you were unlikely to be qualified for the job. And so it was hard to find individuals who were both disabled enough to fall under the court's definition and yet still um, not disabled too much so that they could perform the essential functions of the job. Um, So, you know, most of us who write in this field think that there was um, a very strong backlash against the ADA, that the courts, it wasn't just misunderstanding um, what the ADA was trying to do. It was a resistance to it, which is part of the concern that we have, you know, going forward after the ADA Amendments Act is are the courts going to try and do this again? Is there going to be sort of a further backlash against the ADA? Uh, That is such a great uh, setup for 
our next uh, set of conversations, which will focus on this ADA Amendments Act and uh, your piece in the Tennessee Law Review, the new ADA backlash. So I was wondering if you could describe, uh, and, and you know, the, the Act passed in 2008, so we had, you know, a Republican president and, you know, a lot of, uh, still um, uh, at the time. And I'm wondering if you could describe the premise of the ADA Amendments Act and what it set out to do, and then we can talk about the uh, the new ADA backlash that you described. Okay, great. So um, the the ADA Amendments Act primarily um, concern only concerns only the definition of disability. That's what the focus was. So Congress, you know, saw what was happening in the courts and said, no, this is not what we intended when we passed the ADA. We intended, you know, people with cancer and diabetes and multiple sclerosis and all of these impairments to be considered disabled. And so um, they didn't change the basic definition of disability, which is still a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities, but they made several interpretive changes. So first of all, they overruled the mitigating measures rule in the Sutton trilogy of cases um, and specifically mentioned, you know, we disagree with Sutton and so we're overruling that. Um, and so, and they said that now if, when we consider if someone's disabled, we should look at them without their mitigating measures. So we ask, what would the person's condition look like if they were not taking medication or they were not using assistive devices, let's say a hearing aid, for instance? So if without a hearing aid, the individual who's hearing impaired would be substantially limited in the major life activity of hearing, then they're considered disabled under the amendments, even though the hearing aid corrects their hearing. Second, Congress disagreed with to the Toyota court's or the court in Toyota's narrowing language and instead made clear that the definition of disability should be broadly construed and should not demand extensive analysis. Congress said that the focus should be on whether the covered entity violated the act, not on whether the person was disabled. So those were two major changes and specifically mentioned the cases by the Supreme Court. And then Congress also expanded the list of major life activities and most ingeniously, in my opinion, stated that major life activities includes the operation of major bodily functions, such as functions of the immune system, normal cell growth, digestive, bowel, bladder, neurological, brain, respiratory, circulatory, endocrine, and reproductive functions. So this allowed things like cancer that might not always have a visible effect on your external major life activities, such as seeing, hearing, walking, etc., to still be considered dis disabilities because cancer would substantially limit the major bodily function of normal cell growth. So that was a really significant change because so many courts had said things like diseases, so all kinds of diseases, again, MS, cancer, epilepsy, um, diabetes, that these things weren't disabilities. They were only allowing um, what we might consider the traditional disabilities of mobility impairments, seeing, hearing, um, intellectual disabilities, but they were not considering uh, diseases. And so this provision allows many of these diseases, even if you can't see anything happening sort of externally, it's not visible that somebody has a disability, they are considered disabled now after the amendments. And then finally, Congress added a provision regarding impairments that are episodic or in remission, stating that if the impairment substantially limits a major life activity, including those major bodily functions, when active, it will continue to be a disability even when not active. So for instance, if someone has relapsing, remitting form of multiple sclerosis, if the disease would substantially limit a major life activity when active, so it would limit perhaps the neurological functions, then it will continue to be a disability even when it's in remission. So that's what this, that's what, um, really the major uh, summary of what the provisions did in the amendments. If you don't mind, if I may ask something about um, uh, 
a particular angle on disability, uh, psychosocial or mental health uh, issues, because I was recently reading a piece by uh, Chris Gazillion on credit scoring models that might end up discriminating discriminating against people with bipolar disorder because essentially um, the, it severely penalizes those who say suddenly went uh, on a binge purchasing spree. And then there were other uh, other material. It was actually there's a lawsuit that I think the EEOC was considering involving some scoring that uh, while it was framed as a neutral way of seeing whether a person would be a good employee, seemed to systematically uh, downgrade or reduce the scores for individuals who gave responses that were symptomatic of, of certain mental illnesses. And I was wondering, did Congress address the mental illness issues at all, or are, the, are those issues that are still pretty dicey in the, in the ADA land? My answer is not directly, although um, in the case law after the amendments, I think we're seeing uh, courts being much more willing to um, to hold that a mental impairment actually is a disability. So prior to the amendments, again, a lot of those mental impairments, including schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and certainly depression and anxiety, PTSD, all of those things were held not to be disabilities as a general matter before the amendments. And now we're seeing lots of these mental impairments being considered disabilities after the amendments. It's still an area of huge stigma. I, I, I don't want to understate that. I think it's, um, I think it's an area that we're, we're going to continue to see a lot of stigma, but at least it's going to be much easier now for an individual who has a mental impairment to at least get their foot in the door and say, I have a disability, and now here's my claim that these kinds of things that you're talking about violates the ADA. So before the amendments, they couldn't even get to the merit of those issues because the courts were saying, no, you don't even have a disability. And so now they're going to actually get some of those claims heard. Now, what happens with that, obviously, is is the big unknown, right? What happens going forward in the case law with regard to the merits of cases, both for those individuals with physical disabilities as well as with mental disabilities, you know, that's that's sort of the big question that we're waiting to see what happens there. In your article, I think what you describe is a shift from essentially ADA cases before the amendments being decided on motions for defense motions for summary judgment, whereas post-amendments, they tend to go to trial. Um, is that an oversimplification? And for any law students uh, listening, this will be on the test. <laughs> um, so it, it's, not, it's not an oversimplification, although I guess I would say that if a plaintiff now um, is surviving the defendant's motion for summary judgment, chances are pretty good that those cases are going to get settled rather than going to trial. But um, you are absolutely right that, um, yes, that is the big shift, is that plaintiffs who were, um, you know, frequently, and there's, you know, a bunch of studies about how many um, individuals were losing their ADA cases, uh, plaintiffs who were losing their ADA cases before the amendments at least now are getting past that point of summary judgment. Again, at least on the issue of whether or not they have a disability. It's a separate issue. You know, if the court decides both the issue of disability as well as the issue on the merits, you know, then then we're not quite sure whether or not we're seeing an increase in the number of plaintiffs who are able to ultimately survive summary judgment, but absolutely on the issue of whether or not the person falls under the protected class of being an individual with a disability. So that's been a, a huge change um, 
after the amendments. And if, if I can, if you don't mind, I'll just rattle off some impairments that were um, have been considered disabilities after the amendments. And most of these had been considered not disabilities prior to the amendments, if not all of them. So bilateral hearing loss, even though it's remedied by hearing aid, hypertension, asthma, diabetes, a knee injury, sleep apnea, irritable bowel syndrome, chronic fatigue syndrome, all kinds of back impairments, um, which is a huge part of uh, ADA case law or back impairments, um, tumors, whether or not caused by cancer, HIV, episodic impairments such as MS that I talked about earlier, cancer even in remission, stuttering, uh, short-term impairments such as two broken legs, pregnancy complications, carpal tunnel, monocular vision, mental impairments as we already talked about, ADHD, severe obesity, stroke, anemia, alcoholism, and perhaps my personal fra- favorite, and Nick will understand this, short stature. So someone who was um, four feet, 10 inches, which is just an inch shorter than I am, was considered to have a disability um, after the amendments, which was quite interesting to me being that I'm about that height. Oh, I have to intervene then yes. because um, I, <laughs> I mean, and this is, I'm so sorry to ask this question because I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. I don't know if we've, I don't know if we've ever met in person, but I, I'm about six foot seven. Okay. And I have been in endless disputes with various <laughs> public universities invite me or other universities invite me to speak. And I say, look, I need the bigger seat. They're like, we won't pay for the extra leg room. I'm actually in a dispute like this right now. And I'm just like, my femur is literally longer than the seat pitch. It's not, right. it's impossible. Oh. And um, I'm wondering, like, at some, I've, I've toyed with the idea of complaining on some level that, like, basically my disability is not being accommodated. I mean, this is actually giving me some hope. I don't know. But, uh. <laughs> yeah, so I'm trying to think of, um, and it was an interesting case, and I don't think ultimately that plaintiff would have won that, but... Um, you know, I mean, certainly in the workplace, I can imagine, you know, I obviously I'm a professor, so this doesn't happen very often for me. But, um, you know, in certain certain blue collar workplaces, there are plenty of machines that I am probably too short to operate. Um, you know, there are sometimes I, you know, I'm renting a truck or something like that, and I can't reach the gas pedal. So um, I can see that. And your argument, I think, actually is going to be a little bit harder. It would have to be that it's a substantial limitation on the major life activity of sitting, but sitting is not listed, if I'm remembering correctly. It's not listed as one of the major life activities. Um, so, ah, okay. yeah, so I don't, it would be, it's going to be a, a, a long, hard fight for you, but I, I get that. I do not have that. Leg room is not something I need on airplanes. Instead, I bring in a little footstool so that I can, so that I can not have my legs go numb. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. Yes. So you, yeah, there's also an issue there. And I, it reminds me actually of conversations I had with Annie Satz uh, at Emory about the uh, concept of universal design as that being sort of, you know, the the fact that we have bathrooms that say have one stall that is specifically designed for the disabled or people disabled in a certain way makes it a much more amenable place for everyone. Say other people can change if they need to change for work or something like that. And I, I really feel like there's something about that universal design claim that could help maybe fuel further political attention to what you're characterizing as the new ADA backlash or the potential for courts to to do again what they did in the 90s in terms of trying to uh, resist the the push of the ADA. I I love the idea of universal design and I'm I'm working on something right now um, that's it's related to that it's universal accommodations basically accommodating everyone so that we avoid the stigma 
of receiving accommodations. But I'm hopeful that with the increase in the number of individuals who are considered disabled, that all kinds of entities, so places of public accommodation as well as employers and places of education, um, a higher education as well as K through 12, will start seeing things in a new light. In other words, instead of having to make individual accommodations, what can we do at a, at a more global level, at a more structural level in our workplace, in our various institutions to make them more accessible to everyone? So I always use the example of, you know, ramps not only help those who are in wheelchairs, but they help, um, you know, parents who are pushing small children in strollers. Um, and, you know, you make a good point about restrooms that are a little bit larger and all of the people that can benefit from that. So I do think that that's my hope. I don't know that I can say that I'm extremely confident about it, but I'm hopeful that um, as we have now interpreted the definition of disability to be much broader, and therefore many more individuals will start claiming that they have rights under the statute, that employers and other entities will start to look at things with an eye towards, well, instead of making these individual accommodations, which can be sometimes inefficient, um, what can I do at a broader level to accommodate everybody, basically? I thought for a moment this was going to be rebranded as episode one of This Week in Transport Law. Let me ask, a, I think, <laughs> a, a question about one of the more controversial parts of, of the ADA. And that's where you start talking about disabilities that are related to to things under people's control in some way, or healthy living and so on. How does that kind of fit in after the Amendments Act? It's a great question. Um, and I think that underlying some of the court's sort of backlash decisions prior to the amendments, there was this concern about choice, right? That a, a, about um, someone has chosen uh, to be in this particular condition. Diabetes is one that comes to mind, well, especially type 2 diabetes that is often, although not always, related to, um, you know, health style, health uh, lifestyle choices, um, as well as obesity, for instance. And that's still a controversial one. And I think a big part of the reason why courts have been reluctant to hold um, that obesity is a disability because it is seen as being something in the person's control. So I don't think that the, I think that the ADA is trying to avoid that determination, is trying to avoid allowing courts to make decisions based on whether or not a disability is a choice. Um, but I don't know ultimately whether or not we'll see success with that. I mean, I, I think right now, the because... Congress has really, I thought, I thought they drafted a statute, the amendments were drafted in such a way as to almost, to make it difficult for courts to say, no, you don't have a disability. You still can in some cases, but it's much harder. Um, and so the big question for me is whether or not courts are just going to find another way um, to continue to say that someone doesn't win, even if they can say that they have a disability. Because ultimately, saying you have a disability is just the first step, right? It's the same thing as saying that you're a particular race or a particular sex or national origin under Title VII. It doesn't get you very far. It just, it just allows you to go ahead and state the merits of your claim and have the court hear the merits of your claim. So I do think that there is... Um, especially in society and the way employers feel about it, even if the courts never say this explicitly, I, you know, I know from experience that employers are often um, really reluctant to give accommodations to individuals whose disabilities have arisen because of what they perceive to be choices that they've made. So, you know, um, someone who's smoking gets lung cancer, 
um, you know, obesity, heart disease that's caused by lifestyle choices. I do think that we're seeing, or that we that we will continue to see that for on on the on behalf of employers and perhaps on behalf of society. Um, I don't think that Congress left open that as a loophole under the amendments, and so it, it's all going to uh, depend on whether or not courts find another way to um, ultimately restrict coverage under the ADA. And it won't be restricting coverage under the definition of disability. It will be through another method, I think. Yes, I think we can recognize some of those difficulties in the the wellness space following the Affordable Care Act and the ADA and GINA and the ACA and and the way they um, sort of grind their wheels together, I think is is particularly difficult uh, to follow. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I do think that we're seeing, um, you know, sort of an effort on, on the part of employers to, you know, the wellness programs have become just, you know, really huge. And that's not my area, obviously. But, you know, I know enough to know that this is one of the things that employers are trying to do, keep healthcare costs down, uh, to hopefully eliminate the number of claims that they get from individuals with disabilities. And it'll be interesting, I think, to see going forward how that ends up intersecting with the ADA. Following the amendments, is there a pattern emerging as to the employer, the defendant's best argument in a disability case? Okay, so I think what's happening, um, so after the amendments, when employers started realizing, oh, I'm no longer going to be able to get this case kicked out on summary judgment simply by saying this person doesn't have a disability, they started looking at, all right, well, what else is the plaintiff going to have to prove? And the big, the, the biggest part of, of the plaintiff's prima facie case, besides establishing that they have a disability, is to show that they are a qualified individual. And that is defined as being able to perform the essential functions of the job with or without a reasonable accommodation. And so what's happened after the amendment, well, before and after the amendments, is that um, we had to figure out, courts have to figure out, well, what are those essential functions of the job? Now, before the amendments, they didn't do it all that often because they would just dismiss the case by saying the plaintiff doesn't have a disability. So now they're having to address those issues much more frequently. Um, and, And I think there's somewhat mixed evidence about whether or not this is going to be the area of the next backlash. I know there are um, some scholars who believe that this is the area of the next backlash. So when when a court is determining what are the essential functions of the job, there are several factors that the EEOC lays out that they're supposed to consider. But one of them is the employer's statement about what the essential functions of the job are. And so how much deference a court gives to the employer is often outcome determinative. So if an employer or if an employer says, you know, you have to be able to lift 50 pounds in order to do this job, even though lifting 50 pounds comes up really, really rarely that somebody actually has to lift 50 pounds by themselves. If the employer says you have to lift 50 pounds and the court is so inclined to find in favor of the employer because they don't like the ADA, um, then they're just going to say, well, we're just going to defer to the employer. The employer says that's an essential function. It must be. Um, And so we are seeing some of that. And so um, Steve Befford at Minnesota has written an empirical piece saying that employers are winning slightly more often after the amendments on that qualified question, whether or not someone's qualified than they were before. Michelle Travis has written Um, a piece on this issue of what are the essential functions and how much deference employers are being given in determining those essential functions. 
so we are seeing that happen. My evidence is, is was not, I didn't come out completely on the side of, yes, this is the new location of the next backlash. In other words, I'm not entirely convinced. And part of that is because even though the amendments went into effect January 1st of 2009, um, they don't apply retroactively. So just based on the length of time it takes for litigation to get through the courts, you know, we are now seeing a substantial sort of critical mass of cases, but it's taken several years for us to really get that critical mass. And, and so I don't know, I still have a sense, in my sense anyway, it's a little early for us to make any sort of broad declarations about whether or not this is going to be the area of the next backlash. In other words, are courts going to just start saying, you know, no one's qualified because uh, no one can perform the essential functions. And the way they would do that is by deferring to whatever the employer says are the essential functions of the job. Well, in the uh, last couple of minutes that we've got, uh, Nick, the uh, article that we've been discussing has a really interesting section uh, towards the end where you talk about structural norms of the workplace. Uh, obviously, for a, an academic, it's hard to understand what a structural norm in a workplace is. But I wondered if you could give us a sense of how that fits into your thesis. Sure, absolutely. So by structural norms, what I mean are, are things like hours, shifts, schedules, attendance policies, etc. So basically, not the actual functions of the job. So for instance, making widgets or cleaning hotel rooms, um, but the when and where work is performed. So what I found is, as I was analyzing, so basically my ADA backlash, my, the new ADA backlash piece that we're talking about, looked at all cases decided um, under the amendments until December 31st, 2013. That was just the end of my data set, and this article was published in 2014. And so when I looked at those cases, even though I didn't find any strong evidence of the backlash when the accommodation related to the physical functions of the job, I did see something quite different when the accommodation requested dealt with those structural norms of the workplace. So let me just give you one example. Um, so rotating shifts. So, you know, lots of employers, especially those who um, operate 24-7, a lot of the healthcare industry for one thing, but also a lot of manufacturing um, workplaces use rotating shifts. Well, many employees with disabilities cannot work rotating shifts. It's very hard for a lot of individuals with diabetes or if they're recovering from some kind of surgery to work those rotating shifts. So they seek an accommodation from their employer to work a straight shift. The courts have almost uniformly held that rotating shifts are an essential function of the job simply by deferring to the employer's assertion that rotating shifts are essential. In other words, they don't question it at all. And once the court deems rotating shifts to be essential, the plaintiff loses because an employer never has to eliminate an essential function of the job as a reasonable accommodation. Now, keep in mind, it's, I think it's somewhat counterintuitive to say a shift when work is performed is a job task or function. And in fact, the EEOC has said that shifts and schedules are not essential functions of the job. In other words, the EEOC's advice is that as long as employees can perform the actual physical functions of the job, then the issue of whether the employer needs a modification of the hours or shifts or schedule becomes part of the undue hardship analysis, which is a defense to the reasonable accommodation provision. But courts are not following the EEOC's view on this. And so this issue with regard to structural norms is so important because at least according to one study that I've seen, changes to an employee's schedule is the most frequently requested accommodation, which I was sort of surprised um, when I learned that. So it's my belief that if we are going to see another backlash against the ADA, this might be where we see it when courts are deciding issues of whether the employee can meet the employer's requirements 
regarding when and where work is performed. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. Special thank you to Nicole Porter for joining us. Great fun having you with us, Nick. Thank you so much. I'm so happy that I got to be part of this. We post our show notes at twill.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where can you be reached this week? I can be reached at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. Thank you.